Hey everyone, before we get started today, just a quick warning. There's a little bit of language in this episode, so if you have kids in the room, just beware. What's up everybody? Welcome back to season two, episode three-ish of Starting a Fire, Life Lessons Learned from a Church Planting Adventure. My name is CB. I'm the pastor of a new church plant in Denver, Colorado called Beacon. And uh, Josh today is not on the microphone. He's running sound because today, as a part of this season two effort talking about tending the fire or self-assessment, what we're doing is interviewing a dear, dear friend of mine. But before we get into that, let me kind of give you a high level of what the focus is over the next three episodes in season two. Really, our big push is that I'm getting an opportunity to sit down with people that I admire that I trust, and that I believe do a good job at pushing the needle in their respective area of expertise, and they take a close look at themselves. So we've already recorded a, uh, an interview with my friend Jillian, former employer of mine. We've got another one coming up next week, but this one, this one is near and dear to my heart, and I'm very excited about this. I'm sitting across the table from Josh Schmitz. Josh is a trusted friend, and in this journey of planting our church, I have probably brought every single idea or question directly to him first. Josh is kind enough to be honest with me and rude to me and tell me the truth where I need to hear it, and um, and you know, folks, that we talk about that as being one of the most valuable people that you can have in your life. Josh, how are you, man? Doing great. I'm glad that we're uh, getting a chance to do this today. Yeah, me too. Josh, we're sitting in the basement of uh, Bellwether, the coffee shop, whiskey bar, barber shop, clothing store, live music venue, tattoo studio. What else is this place? It's anything you want it to be. It's anything you want. We're sitting in the basement right now of this place, and 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 you're the the purveyor of this fine establishment, along with uh, the owner of Ruckus, which is a clothing line that is really national distribution, really really successful kind of counterculture. How how would you describe Ruckus Apparel for us? Uh, we make high quality garments for you to throw up and bleed on. That's uh, perfect. It's a, it's a lifestyle brand, and uh, you know we have anything from. Gangsters to pastors to bankers to artists musicians, uh, you know, it's a, just really an inclusive lifestyle brand that want to change the way how you feel, not just how you look. That's perfect, and and it's true. If anybody meets me, they know I, I almost exclusively wear Ruckus and Death Crew T-shirts, and um, and it's a question I get all the time. What is the Death Crew? Can you can you share with us what the Death Crew is all about? Yeah, it depends on who I'm talking to. Yeah. If uh, if I don't have five or ten minutes, or somebody's you know obviously not going to get it, I'll just say it's a gang. And then that usually stops them in their tracks and they don't ask any more questions. <laughs> no, but Death Cure is just a mantra. We, uh, on one of our first releases, we did a capsule collection surrounding the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And my designer just made this kind of Death Crew little icon. And, uh, and it just kind of really stuck with me. It was a really iconic, just kind of brand image. And um, at that point, I was getting into a lot of stoicism, a lot of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl has been my favorite for forever. And so kind of just this personal mantra of living your life in the way that death is a victory. So, you know, if death is a victory, how afraid of life can you be? Yeah. And with just that, the ideology of just death crew, that's kind of just what we push. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, and it, and it, and it's doing well and, um, it's fun. These are the kind of shirts and clothing that, um, I wear that I just like the way I feel in it. So, um, thanks for making them, man. Yeah. Real quick. We, this is where you're at now. Like this is your thing now, but this is not the only thing that you do. And I wonder if um, <laughs> you can touch a little bit on how you got here. I mean, the truth is, is that in, in our conversations as friends, you and I sitting down, 
I think probably every third conversation I get more of your life story and there's another layer to you of something that you did that is like shocking, nearly mind-blowing, whether it be some great adventure, some personal accomplishment or some like hellacious season that you've been through. There seems to be this pattern of your life which is like you have these huge peaks and these great big experiences and I wonder if, if you don't mind like giving us, catching us up to speed you know, the last like 15 years of your life, like what have you done? Cause I think people should know what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, I've, somebody the other day said a lot of cars were, were made in 1986, but not, not as many cars has many miles on them as you. And I feel like I've uh, put a lot of miles in this body. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was born in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Uh, my mom and dad, Rick and Shauna, uh, were super, super young. Um, so we grew up, you know, just, poor. We grew up poor and struggling and my dad's been a pastor ever since I've been alive. So, um, started out as a pastor's kid. And really, I think that looking back on that, what that ingrained in me the most is two things. One, really the entrepreneurial spirit comes from my dad being a pastor. I think that people fail to realize that entrepreneurs are pastors. You have to raise your own money. You have to do all that stuff and B that you can make, make a living by helping people. I think that's the, those are the two things that my dad really taught me. And so, um, I kind of just grew up with that mindset. So, yeah, and then I also grew up, uh, when you're young and poor, you grew up pretty violent, so I had kind of a, uh, an inkling towards violence a lot, so I played a lot of combat sports, got into rugby really, really young. Um, my, dad, my mom and dad were amazingly, uh, amazingly supportive and gracious to, to not only me, but all my siblings growing up, so um, <clears throat> there was not a mold we needed to fit into. If I wanted to figure out you know, roller skating, they would figure that out. If I wanted to play baseball, they would figure that out. They were amazingly supportive. There was nothing I couldn't do, or they... they uh, led me to believe was out of my scope of possibility. So when I when I was in eighth grade, there was a guy I really looked up to in my dad's youth group called Josh Story, right? When you're like in middle school, you always find like the one high school kid that like is like your idol. And this kid, Josh Story, played rugby. And uh, I was like, man, I want to do that. And randomly, Colorado is kind of just a random hotbed for rugby and uh, got in really young, ended up uh, playing on the USA under-19 team. I was the captain of the Collegiate All-Americans in 2006 uh, on our tour against Trinidad and Tobago and Canada. And then played professional rugby here, uh, won two national championships with the Glendale Raptors. Uh, and then I, at that same time, I got married when I was 20. And the same season I was planning on retiring, uh, I went through a divorce. So I kind of hope my whole life got flipped upside down, especially, you know, growing up in the church. When you get a divorce, it's not just the end of your relationship. It's kind of the end of everything that you've been working towards your whole life. It's the end of uh, your two and a half kids, the white picket fence. Um, at that time, I was also a pastor. I was a youth pastor at the church. Uh, some 90210 drama went down. I ended up um, being fired from the church. My dad had to fire me. Wow. Uh, so was fired from my church, uh, lost all my best friends. At the same time, uh, was forced, basically forced into retirement uh, because of head injuries in rugby. Um, at that point, you know, what do you do? I, I, literally, the, the three pillars of my life, which was my church, my wife, and my sport, my, was, were gone. So... Um, I'd always been really into fashion and I just kind of transitioned all of that energy into fashion and, uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but the reality is in my life, I, I come from nothing and I've had nothing. So I also have a nothing to lose attitude. So the reality is if I go after everything with all you can, if, if I fail, I'm back at square one is we'll yeah. try something different. So, yeah. And then, and, and you rolled that in that sort of, um, that interest in fashion, you rolled that into starting ruckus kind of on a whim. I mean, how did that work? Yeah, so I've, I've been into fashion since I was a little kid, man. So, like, when we'd go back to school shopping in, like, you know, third and fourth grade, we'd get a $100 bill, and we could go back to school shopping. 
And my, my siblings would go to like places like JCPenney's, the mall. They'd get like two pairs of jeans and a couple shirts, right? Right. I would go to the thrift stores and get like 80 shirts and like cut them and dime and time. And like ma- I was just always been into like standing out and being an individual with how I dressed. And so uh, that's just something that I've kind of always done. So uh, I had a friend that worked at a screen printing place and he let me paint him in six packs of beers after hours and uh, would show me how to screen print. And honestly, I was just listening to a lot of Wu-Tang at the time. I wish I had a better story, but that's the truth. <laughs> I was listening to a bunch of Wu-Tang at the time. And so I made this this T-shirt with this like polar bear that I found in this old hunting magazine, uh, Eating a Hunter, and just put the word ruckus behind it and wore it. Um, it was just a one-of-a-kind piece, and people started asking me about it. So I think I had $300 in my checking account. I printed 50 of them and sold them out of the back of my car until they were sold out. And then I printed 100, and then I printed 300. And then uh, I think I got my bank account up to like 1200 bucks, and went off into three different designs and just kept hustling, did that for almost a year and a half, and then uh, randomly got asked to do a fashion show, um, and it kind of just kind of snowballed from there. That's crazy, right? And, yeah. and, so, and now we're here. I mean, we're sitting in the flagship store for Ruckus, which doubles as Bellwether, mm-hmm. right? And, and yet your clothing is purchased online all over the country. Yeah. Yeah, so we... When you do that fashion show, when I say I didn't go to, I mean, I went to school. I went to the University of Wyoming for on a rugby scholarship. <clears throat> but I, I, here's how dumb I was growing up. I, when I went and had my first meeting in college with my guidance counselor, she was like, what do you want to major in? And I had just gotten back. I was playing professional rugby overseas in Samoa. I came back, was home for like three days, and went right to, went right to school. Uh, passed up a full-ride scholarship to Cal Berkeley to go to the University of Wyoming because I was freaking homesick, and I'm from Denver. Still one of the dumbest things I've ever <laughs> – my dad's like, you, do you know what you're doing? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm homesick. And so yeah. Wyoming gave me a scholarship. So went up there, and uh, I was sitting in the gun cancer, and she's like, well, what do you want to major in? And this is how much of an idiot I was. I was like, listen, here's the reality. I'm not really here to learn. I'm here to play rugby. So whatever kind of that major is, that's what I want to take. And she goes, oh, well, for people like you, you do communications or sociology. Let's, let's figure out which one works better with your schedule. I love it. I love <laughs> and, it. And randomly took, you know, majored in sociology, double majored in religion. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, but God works in crazy ways. Sociology is just, it's just the group psychology. And if you can figure out group psychology, and especially in a way that, like, you can adapt it, it's what else is marketing but that. That's so right. even people that want to get into marketing and that stuff, I'm like, don't take, don't major in marketing, major in sociology, major in the, in the actual science and stuff behind it, behind group thoughts. Cause if you can, if you can control that or not even control it, just understand it better. You know, how much you'd be able to, better are you going to be able to communicate, sell your product, you know, display your product, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's a kind of a blessing. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing is, is that you have, um, uh, and, and I want to talk a little bit about some of your highs and your successes. But part of this story of yours is um, remarkable trial and error. Or maybe just sort of like throwing the dart and see where it lands. I mean, that's what, that's what I'm sensing, right? Did you start this thing out? I mean, knowing that you had this proclivity for its, towards standing out, did you have a through line in your heart that said like, yeah, I'm always going to probably, I'll probably end up doing X, Y, and Z? Or was it just, well, this thing didn't work or this thing didn't pan out and so here's... I'm gonna try this thing. I mean, how did you get that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I've I've always kind of had that. It was never <clears throat> nothing in this. As well, that's what's it's so funny. Even now, people are like, "What are your five year plan?" And I'm like, "Man, I don't even know what my five hour plan is." You know, I've, I've never really been like a a goal projector or anything. You know, when I was when I was screen printing T shirts for six packs of beer, I'd be completely lying to you if I said I knew it was going to grow up into be a, a multinational brand. We were going to sell to 28 countries last year. Like, yeah. I, there's. I was just making enough money to pay my rent and just going from there. So 
Um, and it wasn't even an X, Y, and Z. I mean, there was a time in my life after my divorce that I literally had no money and, you know, uh, couldn't be in the, in the rugby team house anymore. Uh, so I was literally like working at like, uh, like a multifamily residential kind of commercial property place, like literally doing like handyman stuff, like teaching people how to like plunge toilets and doing like siding takeoffs and shit. Like it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't this like, I don't know. It was just, you just do what you have to do in the moment to get it done. So yeah, that's just kind of always been my thing. And so I think like going forward, the reality is the, the, your, your quote unquote destiny, your, your quote unquote, like purpose, all that stuff, like maybe this made this is this is a broad stroke but just for me personally i've never in my life had anything going according to plan i mean i i lived 20 years on this earth was a virgin till marriage all this stuff you know for this for this plan of having a wife and kids and being a pastor and all this stuff and when that burns and fails it's like what do you do you you have two options you either get bitter or you get better and it's like the the one thing that life has shown me is that there's no neutral in life like you're either you're either like on the bus or under it you know what i mean and yeah. so it's like a it's a mindset shift just being able to say okay this is the season i'm in right now but reality is it's up to me to figure out how to get out of it. That's good. And I want to get into that mindset real quick uh, in just a minute because there's there's something about the way that you think, the way that you operate that I think is important, especially given sort of some of the lows in your life. But before we do that, there, you're one of those guys, and, and if you're listening to the podcast, I know that you know one of these people who seems to, from appearances, operate on all cylinders. You You seem to touch things and they seem to grow. They seem to work. You're also one of those guys who remarkably knows everybody of influence. Like I, it's not it's not uncommon for me to open Instagram and and I know you. I get to see you two three times a week, right? And we sit down, we have coffee, we talk about dreams, but it's also not uncommon for me to open Instagram and see you like having a coffee with some super famous person in any number of industries, music artists, fashion designers, titans of industry. I mean, it's it's almost uncanny the way in which you operate at a level or are connected to people who also operate at the very pinnacle of their career. There's not a secret to that, is there? I mean, how do you sit in that environment? And how do you how are you that kind of a person? Because I think everybody knows that guy, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, God, how, how do they know those people? What's that like for you? I mean, well, how does that happen? I mean, honestly, if you want to, if I was trying to boil down how I get myself in the same room as people, or I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But I think it's pretty simple. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna be successful in whatever you want to be successful, in, whether that's you know going after wealth or happiness or influence, whatever that is. If you just do good work and you're a good person, and for some reason people just can't do the combination of those two <laughs> things very well very often. Right. It's like yeah, like if you want if you want to have influence or anything like that, like let's just start by not being a selfish dickhead. Yeah. Like if you could just start there, you'd be really surprised. You know what I mean? And yeah. And I also think too, like one of my biggest things, and, I, and I've been told this, and I didn't recognize I, I did this or was good at this until my friend uh, Mike Smith pointed it out. Um, he's like, man, you are the very best that I know at celebrating your friends. Yep. So, and I, I, that just comes naturally to me when my friends do something well, I want to celebrate it. You know what I mean? I, I say all the time, I don't have a drinking problem. I have a celebration problem. And I just <laughs> hang out with really cool people. So there's always something to celebrate. Right. But uh, but yeah, it's like, you know, when, like when that, when your friend gets a promotion or when your friend signs that record deal or when your friend sells out the Ogden and when your friend starts a church, whatever, like I want to be in their corner, like a WWF, like, like tag team partner, just cheering them on. And so many other people look at that as like, Oh, they did that. So that means I didn't get it. Like if, if I'm in a band and this other band does better than me, like they're stealing a piece of my pie or something. Right. And that's not, I've, I've always operated on like the rising tide raises all ships. Yep. So like when they're like, man, you're spread so thin. Like if you just focus on just coffee or just cocktails, maybe bellwether would be better. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Um, 
I think the better the tattoo parlor gets, the, the better bellwether is going to get. The more people through the door, the better the barbershop gets. The you know the more athletes are in here, the more influence we have, the more people we're gonna, you know beers we're going to sell. Yeah. I think if just a rising tide raises all ships, and I think that's how you should look at all things in life. That's good. I, I like it too. We have an episode in season one called "Just Don't Be a Jerk," right? Like ultimately, sometimes just having uh, a character that is um, above reproach, that's how we would say it in the church, or just being like a good person yeah. is how we would say it in the world, sometimes carries you a little bit further. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and like the reality is too, everybody can operate on a high cylinder or high energy <clears throat> or efficiently when things are going well. Yeah. <clears throat> that's, not, that's not difficult for anybody. That's why, I mean, that's not difficult for anybody. The, the reality is like your baseline is going to be how you operate when things are not going well. When you wake up and your bank account has one less zero than you thought it did, yeah. you know, like how do you? What's your mentality? How do you? How do you treat people then? All of that kind of stuff too. So it's yeah. not just not just operating on a high cylinder when things are good. It's double operating on a high cylinder when things are bad That's too. Good, kind of double down on that. All right. So so here's the deal. Let's get into that for a sec. The entire purpose of this season for us, this second season, is um, really understanding the importance of self assessment. Doing the things like asking yourself the hard questions, having that long look in the mirror, rubbing your nose in your own mess such that you don't ignore failure and, and, and so that you can learn from it and improve from it. So mm-hmm. your life hasn't always been golden, and you've shared with us a few things that you've gone through. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I bet if we went through it, you could share some crushing defeats. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder for me if you would be willing to share like, what is that moment like for you the next day, the next week that when you say double down, like it's not just killer work ethic. Like what, what do you do to really look at Josh and say like, okay, this has to change. I've got to go forward. What's that like for you? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the, the, <clears throat> the one thing that's going to change the world, I, I, I swear, if, if everybody in the world could just become 2% more self-aware, the world would be a completely different 2%. place. 2%. Two, I think that if everybody would, could just be 2% more self-aware, the world would be a completely different. Okay. Uh, but the reason we don't do that is because the more self-aware you become, the more you realize you're just a piece of trash. <laughs> right. Like, right. We, we talk about it all the time, whether it's in a mentoring session or uh, with employees or um, with clients or with friends. Um, you know, it's like I'm sitting, sitting in front of you and if I have a light bulb between us, what the light hits is what we would call your talents or what your strengths are. Right. And the problem is, is what that also does is naturally draws a shadow. And so many people get so used to the Instagram likes on their strengths or, you know, that I'm really good at this. So they, they never pay attention to that shadow. And the the reality is, it's like the shadow, you have to understand that there's, that there's a shadow side or a monster side to your personality. You know what I mean? And be able to to look at people and love and accept them for both, and including yourself. So, for instance, for me, I get I get that compliment a lot. Like, man, I am that diagnosed hypomanic, so it's not really something I can teach as far as the energy levels. Mm-hmm. But it makes me amazingly um, like sporadic. Uh, I'm always ready. I say yes to a bunch of things, like all these things. But then at the same time, like my shadow side of that is I don't plan. Like, so like I'm not, not very good at planning. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's just like, you know, understanding like you, you have to be self-aware enough to know like what you're good at and what you're bad at and, and love yourself regardless. You know what I mean? How have you become self-aware? I mean, what are the, some of the things that you do to sort of really get to know Josh in, in, in reality, not in present, presentation? Totally. I think that the, the nights alone. So, for, I mean, there's been some of the, the from the outside world, maybe the most glorious times of my life or the most... Uh, like if you if you were looking from the outside in, you'd be like, man, he's killing it, or he's he's doing living the dream, and then I'd go home at night and I w- would feel the most empty I've ever felt. So I lived in L.A. for a little while. I opened up a club called Summer Sessions, 
And uh, I was like a promoter for that. So, you know, it was like a, it was literally a thousand dollar minimum. If you didn't have a reservation, it was a thousand dollar cover to get in. You'd stand at the top of these pedals. So Sarah's getting picked, you know, pick and choose who got to come in. You know, I was selling um, tables to like, you know, like all these huge rappers and like, you know, I was just like from the outside, you're like, oh man, he's doing it. But at the same time I'd go home and I hated every second of it. It Mm -hmm. was like, I didn't like who I was becoming. I didn't like that. I was, that I was encouraging or enforcing this random totem pole of importance, you know? So the club was open Sundays only. I'd go in to my boss every Monday and quit. And he'd be like, no, don't quit. He's like, you're new to LA. <laughs> Everybody goes through this. Here's, here's $5,000. I'd be like, oh, okay. And that would make me feel pretty good monetarily and momentarily. And I would live an LA life. And I was making more money than I'd ever made, but I was spending more money than I'd ever made. And yep. I was more lonely than I'd ever been. And it was just becoming self-aware in those moments. Like, man, the things that I thought would make me happy are really the things that are leading to my, my biggest loneliness. And I think that when you, when you put effort or um, some type of like entitlement or purpose behind comfort, wealth, in, even influence or fame, like it's, it's not there. I mean, in LA, I was rubbing shoulders with some of the most powerful people I knew and they were also some of the most lonely and deprived people I knew, um, you know, for me. So it's like when I look at the people that I truly admire, it's like dudes that are just solid ass husbands, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, I go to these conferences and people are trying to grow their church, but their marriage is falling apart. I'm like, you need to leave right now. Like go home and take your wife on a date. Like, you know, like take care of your household. Like that's like, that's, that's what like just success is. I think it starts, you know, starts from the inside. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the thing, uh, how I look at self-assessment is not, not what anybody else judges of me. And that, I've been really good at that too. I, I think because I've been an individual for so long, I've gotten pretty um, numb to outside influence or outside like applause, not to, not to say that applause isn't a vice of mine. Everyone loves applause. Yeah. But when I can go home and I can clap to myself in the mirror, that means way more than standing in front of anybody else getting clapped at. That's good. Now, you, you, so you had a season in L.A. where on, on the outside, killing it. Yeah. On the inside, dead. Yeah. Can we say, like in Denver right now, I mean, you're getting some coverage, right? There's some magazines being written, articles written about you. You're getting, uh, I, I would say that your profile is continuing to grow. Since I've known you the last four years, I would say your influence has spread. And I would say that people are saying the same thing. God, dude's killing it. So how are you fulfilled now? I mean, what are those things that you're doing now to avoid that feeling in L.A.? Yeah. Well, the, the number one thing, too, that is kind of scaring me about New Denver <clears throat> is in Denver, no one ever asked you what you did. Oh, sorry, man. I got a nasty no, you're frog. Good. You're good. <clears throat> oh. um, no one ever asked you what you did. They just asked you who you are. Right. And now it's like with a, a lot of the influx of new money, a bunch of this kind of stuff, people are like, oh, like, you know, like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to answer that question unless I'm, I know you for like 10 days. You know what I mean? So the community we've built in Denver, I mean, our friend circle and our, our level of influence and just community here is unlike anything I've ever seen. We have friends in our friend group that could make double the money somewhere else and don't want to leave because our friend group is so solid here. So, um, that makes me fulfilled knowing that, um, at any point in my, in my day, I have 20 people I can call that would come and change a tire for me. That would come and give me money if I needed it. That would come and just have a drink with me. That would, you know, like, and I think just that internal community, I don't think we were done, you know, designed to do life solo. So, uh, the community here, um, is unlike anything I've ever seen. And it's not just support, it's truth too. So like I have friends that if I, if I'm in a relationship and I get caught cheating, they'll beat my ass. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. They'll, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's like, they, I have like real friends here. Um, and when you have that kind of level of, of commitment to each other and, um, it's really cool. 
That's good. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me, um, it, it's cool that you talk about this community because that is one of the things that I think everybody knows about you. I, I, I would say that anybody who's a friend of yours would count you in their top two or three friends. You're that kind of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are like that oftentimes have um, people who are like you who give a lot of themselves oftentimes can be taken advantage of or feel um, like they don't get it in return. Yep. Um, you run into that? Do you ever feel like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I had to realize that, that not everyone is going to act or think the same way that I do either. That's good. And just like with anything, you know, you don't, you don't help somebody because you think that they're going to help you back. You help somebody because it's, it's what you think is right, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so really, it's, this is about kind of, for you, it's about being led by some really intrinsic convictions. Yeah. We, uh, I, I did a profile assessment a long time ago um, with a bigger company where they were doing a bunch of just uh, kind of who you are at the core and yep. then working backwards. So they had to start with um, basically you'd, it was just you at a funeral and you're, you're watching a funeral. And, um, you know, what are the best things that somebody could say about someone at a funeral? And so you go through and you just had to kind of list out three or four things that like a man of like that would lead you to believe that this stranger was like the dopest guy ever. Right. right. And then, like, and then you slowly walk up to get to your remorse, and it's actually you laying in the coffin. And then you go back and look at what you what you would have you know thought was the best things, and then those are actually what's important to you, you know. So then you start looking at how you're acting. So, for instance, like in mine, like the, the amount of dollars in my bank account was not something that I would ever want talked about at my funeral. I don't would never want that to be the defining characteristic of me. Right. Uh, but so many decisions in my life sometimes are made around that. So it's just even again, just being self-aware about am I living for right now? Or am I living forever? So, um, I think that just the, the idea of legacy is, is huge for me. Um, but yeah, it's never, I don't really run into the man. I, I picked him up and he didn't pick me up. Like that's, you know, it's not, that's not on me. Yeah. Okay. So, um, a couple more questions and then, and, and then I want to give you like a big opportunity to just share with us, um, maybe some life lessons you want to run. But let me ask you this. Uh, you have done this thing called Unlife. It's like a annual gathering of thought leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, you invited me to come and attend um, a couple years ago mm-hmm. and turns out to speak. And I've been invited to speak at conferences, and so I assumed it was a conference. And I show up, and everybody there, it's a small group. This is gathering 12, 15 people. Yep. And everyone there is in some form or fashion also called to speak. And I'd never been in an environment where I was the speaker and also the audience. And my roommate was someone, you organized this to make it so that no one was a roommate with someone they knew. Mm-hmm. And then you had this rule that said you could not say what you did the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that was such a um, barrier stripper. I mean, I remember feeling so uncomfortably vulnerable there because I didn't get to be traveling evangelist guy. I didn't get to be pastor guy. I had to be me and had to be seen. And, and I've shared this with you a million times, those three days in the mountains, meeting guys, uh, lead singers of punk bands, hardcore bands, guys who run these global nonprofits, uh, the world's leader in, in car sales, right? I mean, just this re- models, all this stuff, really interesting crowd that I would have previously postulated myself. I would have sort of given off this era of this is who I am so as to keep them all at bay. There was none of that, and I had to be completely vulnerable. And it completely changed the course of my life. The next month, I quit my job. Mm-hmm. The next month, I went into full-time ministry unpaid. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was that kind of an experience. You did that in my life. And, and I have talked to countless peoples for whom you have done the same thing. 
I said, I guess the two questions are where in the hell did you get this idea to do this kind of thing? These big, grandiose, deep questions and gestures that have changed the course of people's lives. And two, um, how do you sustain that? Yeah. So unlife, the story behind unlife is a pretty crazy one. And I think that, uh, when people are like, well, how do you know God exists? I'm like, well, let me tell you just a one-on-one of my story. Cause it makes no sense without him. Right. <laughs> so, right. uh, I was working for a company called Ink Monster a couple of years ago. I was the head of marketing there and, uh, we threw this event, uh, with Red Bull. That was just a series of pool parties called free for all. And Wu Tang played there. Crisley played there. Um, ASAP Ferg played. It was literally just a pool party. It was a, just a pool party. That's it. And it was free entrance, free booze, free marijuana. It's like unheard of. We brought in like 40 tons of sand, turned this huge parking lot into a beach. Bunch of, it, was, it was absolutely crazy. So, but it was sponsored by Red Bull. And at this time when, when marketing was kind of in a big shift, going digital, all this stuff, the, it was the first time the impressions were ever kind of being like targeted or um, even looked at as far as like marketing reach. So <clears throat> through the course of the pool party series, we hit a million media impressions. So Red Bull was like, even X Games doesn't hit a million media impressions. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was beyond excited. I was, I mean, I, we, this was a home run from this, marketing, yeah. from, from uh, clients, from the, the you know, on a fun. It was, it was a huge, huge kind of catapult to my career in you know, moving forward, and it could have been. Um, but I'm so, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm talking to everybody. I'm like, you know, I'm literally like ecstatic on cloud nine. I get in my car, and for those of you guys that don't know me, I'm not an audible voice of God guy. I am not a... Holy roller, God does not like speak. You know, I, I'm not a, a voice of God. So guy. I love you, man. Yeah, yeah. And I get in my I get in my car, and it's clear as freaking day, this voice just comes over and just keeps on saying, "For what? For what? For what?" And I'm like, "Man, what is like? You know, I'm like, am I hearing like it was it was an it was an odd like tingly. I mean, it was the real deal. Just for what? For what? For what? And I'm like, I don't know what this means. And I go to bed that night, and I have a dream that I'm in New York with, with my entire crew, like my staff from Ink Monster. And there's a, there's a tsunami warning that comes over, and it says that there's a million-mile tsunami that's coming to, to New York. And we're all freaking out, and it's this whole kind of nightmarish dream. Well, the tsunami hits, and it's only an inch deep. It's a miles wide, but an inch deep, and it just kind of just washes the city floor. doesn't make any damage, doesn't do any impact outside of just this initial hype, and then it's gone. I'm like, okay, that's really interesting kind of live that whole next day. And I'm like, just kind of still in this funk trying to figure out what all this is going on. I have the exact same dream the, the next night, a million mile tsunamis coming to, coming to New York, blah, blah, blah. Except this time it's a, it's a, it's a mile wide and a million miles tall. That's it. And it just destroys everything in the city. And I started, I started thinking, man, who cares if a million media impressions, a million people see you, but it's the most shallow interaction ever. A million people seeing your logo doesn't mean anything, but if you were deep, it could change everything. Yeah. So, you know, five, five, six months later, I get a call from Red Bull. They're like, hey, like, let's start planning that pool party series again, you know, all this stuff. And like, by this time, like, you know, I kind of had them, so they didn't, couldn't really tell me no. I was like, yeah, man, I, I know last year was awesome, but I never want to do anything like that ever again. And they're like, well, what do you mean? What do you want to do this year? I'm like, this year, instead, I'll, instead of growing wide and doing that, I want to grow deep. You know, give me the same amount of budget and let me get 30 of the biggest, most influential dent kickers in history that I know together. And they were like, Okay. So I called all my mentors and was like, hey, who is like literally like the youngest, like hardest going, gnarly dude you know from anything, whether it's art, music, business, fashion, like just like just send him to this thing. So from that, we ended up getting like the CEO of Wiener Schnitzel. We had I mean, we had like all of these crazy people come yeah. together and we went and we just went on this whitewater rafting 
trip um, and Unlife was kind of born. And from that, then those people were like, holy shit. And, they, and then they were calling their mentors and it, like, it just kind of just really catapulted on itself. And now we have this amazing network. I mean, the president of Singularity University to Daniel Epstein at, at uh, you know, um, Boulder. And I mean, it's, it's great. The people that have come through Unlife are pretty gnarly. Pretty, pretty insane, right? I mean, right before we started this, I got a text message from Tommy Green, who's a yep. friend of ours. Mm-hmm. He, he's the lead singer of a hardcore band, Sleeping Giant. Yep. And I would have never known Tommy Green. And yet, I, I've gotten to know him in the same fashion that you know him. It's just this sweet, kind-hearted, driven, mm-hmm. wonderful. And it's just one of those things where it just opens this door and it changes lives rather than these uh, superficial glimpses at something that's aspirational, right? right. right. All right. So let's do this. I want to close, but I want to give this to you. Everybody here is listening. We, we have this great audience of people who are interested in sort of, you know, what are some universal principles that they can take from what we have learned in starting this church? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I try my best to kind of give them some nuggets to take with. You are not typically the here's a universal truth that you can apply to all things. Yep. But there's some things that you know that we don't. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's a couple things that you might be willing to share that are unique to you that, um, that you think are important, should be important to other people who are doing something like transforming their life physically, emotionally, mentally, starting a brand new business, walking away from a toxic, like those sort of things, really like the precipice of their life story being, I was this thing and now I'm this thing. Can you share with us a few? Yeah. I mean, number one, I mean, I'm not going to give you a a 12 steps or anything like that, but, um, I mean, super, super practical. And so you don't need a thesaurus or anything. Start taking cold showers. Uh, I take a cold shower every morning and, uh, it's the suckiest five minutes of my whole day. Uh, and it doesn't get easier, but it makes everything else in that day just as easy. So I think that just mental discipline, and it's, and it's literally super practical, like a five-minute cold shower, treat, teaching yourself that you, that you can do things that are uncomfortable. I think that Good. we all have this like gravitational pull towards comfort, right? But that's, comfortable lives don't get you anywhere. Comfortable right. lives are never great. And, and so if you can just get in the habit of doing uncomfortable things, I have kind of have this mantra that uh, struggle is holiness, and I think that, that that was defined in Jesus's life. I think that's defined in, in the people that I look up to the most. Struggle is holiness. And I think that if you learn to embrace the struggle and not run from it uh, and almost train yourself to look for it and go after it, um, you're going to live a way better life. Um, you know, I think some, I was on a thing called Hot Dogs for Homeless with Mike Smith. Um, it, was a, it was a thing. We took, the entire, we took the entire month of May off and lived in an RV and just went uh, around kind of the Western United States and hung out in uh, homeless camps and fed hot dogs and just literally just served, um, served the homeless for a month. JR from, from Wiener Schnitzel came on that. Uh, Dingo and Snow from Monster came on that. Danny Evans, Ryan Sheckler. Uh, I mean, we had like all these celebrities mm-hmm. all of a sudden coming out of matching bro tats with like some of the craziest <laughs> idiots now and of a skateboarding hot dog because there was, it didn't, we didn't think there was any way we were going to raise $100,000 and we ended up doubling that. So, wow. um, but it was the most uncomfortable, crappy month of my life. I mean, we, you know, the shower on the, on the RV didn't work. Uh, the, you know, it's a, it's an RV. So you kind of have a no pooping rule too. So you're like, it's you're pulling over at truck stops. And the crazy thing is in this thing is eight CEOs. It's not, it's not college kids. I mean, this is eight yeah. big CEOs. It took a month out of our life to just go and just serve. And it was the most uncomfortable struggle month of my life, but it was also maybe the most meaningful month of my life. And I don't think that you ever get anywhere meaningful without the struggle. I mean, it's almost like, uh, like the founder from, uh, North Face said, um, they have a documentary out, and he's talking about the, just the, the climb to Mount Everest. And he's like, there's two ways to do it. You either train your ass off and you, and you climb Everest, um, or you get a helicopter up and a Sherpa drags you up. You know? And he's like, 
the, even though the view scientifically or the view is technically the same, same. he goes, it's completely different for the guy good. that actually climbed it. So he's like, if you don't learn anything on the way, you're an asshole when you leave and you're an asshole when you get back. <laughs> you know, so for me, it's like just learning to truly in- embrace the struggle. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I look forward to it, you know, and I think that that's, that's one of the things I think that people that have been around me, I don't know if admire is the right word, but like when I call you at three in the morning, cause I'm doing construction in the basement, I'm not lying about that. Yeah. And, and it's because it's because I, I actually like doing the all nighters and I like being tired and I like throwing on a David podcast, David Goggins podcast podcast and, mm-hmm. and just crushing through it because that's what separates me. You know, I think that what separates everybody from anybody is, is how you embrace the struggle and get through it. So the most practical way to start that is cold showers. I love it. That's so good. Josh, thanks for joining us today, man. I really appreciate you. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's it, folks, for episode three of season two. And i um, just grateful that you've joined us here today. Bye-bye. The truth is, sometimes you don't know where the road is going. Sometimes your plans and God's plans, they just don't align. There may be setbacks, there may be disappointment, there could be even utter devastation. But when we look back at our lives from the 10,000 foot view, it's not the bad things we'll remember most. It'll be the high points. It'll be the times when our actions made a difference in the life of someone we loved, or maybe in the life of someone we will never even know. Looking back often allows us to be prepared for rough times ahead, but even more so, it helps us anticipate what God will do next.